Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, so we're uh, not doing our usual comedy intro today because it's a pretty serious topic. It's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Maybe because I like food so much and I care so much about food, uh, it uh, it really troubles me to think that in a state like Connecticut, with the resources that Connecticut has, there are people people experiencing food insecurity. People, probably people you know, uh, you may not know that they're ex- experiencing food insecurity, but probably probably this isn't about this isn't a conversation about a bunch of people that you've never met before. It's about people who are actually around you. Uh, one of our guests is nodding her head right now, agreeing about that. So we're going to talk about food insecurity, about what it means, where it is, what gets done to address it. You're going to hear from people who have experienced and do experience food, uh, food insecurity, which is another name for hunger, a different name for hunger, um, and although not ex- exactly the same thing as hunger because, in fact, uh, most of the – well, actually, I don't, I don't even want to characterize it yet. I'm going to let the guest explain uh, the difference or why that term is, has come into existence. It, we kind of got started on this. We've been wanting to do something about this for a while. Uh, the trigger this time uh, turned out to be a fairly recent study uh, that was done by UConn's Cooperative Exp- Extension System, or actually the UConn Zwick Center for Food and Resource Policy uh, and, and the Department of Cooperative, Cooperative Extension. So we're going to, first of all, um, I've got a, four guests here in studio. You're going to meet them all in just a second, but maybe we'll just start out here with, with uh, some bare bones here with Jif Martin, who is a sustainable food system associate with UConn's Cooperative Extension System and was involved in this study uh, about food security in Connecticut, which is an evaluation and ranking uh, of all 169 towns in Connecticut based on some of the indices that point to food insecurity, but also the the availability of retail food in those towns, uh, people's ability to get to that retail food, and also the food programs that exist in that town. Jeff Martin, I hope I did an okay uh, job of, of summarizing kind of the three axes that you're looking at in that study. That was very good. All right. So uh, is there, uh, and our guests here in the studio may, be, uh, may have their own answers to this, is there, do we ever get a number that we can just put on food insecurity in Connecticut? How many people or what percentage of the Connecticut population are touched by this uh, over the course of a given year? Yeah, there is a study that's generated by the federal government, which refers to household food security. And it's put out every two years, I think. And I believe the last study showed that we were around 12% or higher that of residents living in food insecure households in Connecticut. So one of the things you were trying to do in this study was sort of figure out where, where the potential for food insecurity is the highest mm-hmm. and then how that matches up with anybody's ability to address food insecurity. And, and so, you know, looking at, at the charts and stuff, it, it, a few things jumped out at me. But what, what jumped out at you? What did you learn that you didn't know before doing this study? Um. We, uh, some of my co-author Adam Rabinowitz, who is at the Zwick Center for Food and Resource Policy at UConn, and I were really interested in comparing what was the at risk, what was the likelihood of 
selecting somebody randomly in a community, what was their risk of being food insecure, and then comparing to that or um, untangling that with some of the many, many factors there are that contribute to food insecurity. And one of those was retail, how easy is it basically to go grocery shopping? And the other was uh, public food assistance and really looking at how well are town residents being served through public food assistance services as well as um, that included looking at bus transportation. So this was the first time we tried to look at those three things side by side. And so what's really interesting to me personally is when you look at the three maps, and we have so we have basically three maps of all 169 towns, and what do the colors do? How do the colors shift? So why is a color, why is a town, for example, appear to be um, in the green? In other words, if you pick somebody randomly out of that town, are they experiencing food insecurity or not? Um, and why is that town in the green, which seems to point to the likelihood that there's pretty good uh, median income in that town? And compare that to how it ranked in terms of public food assistance. And when that town flips from green to red, that's a red light for me because, or a red flag for me, because I want to know why a town that seems to have quite a lot of resources um, isn't doing such a good job providing um, town residents with those public food assistance programs that are um, that are out there and are available. Some of those are optional programs like the school breakfast program or the summer meals program. And is there something going on that's preventing residents from tapping into those programs? Are town officials resistant to offering those programs? Is there, uh, is there no bus transportation to get to a local WIC office or um, social services provider? So that's what's most interesting to me, actually, is the comparison of the at-risk ranking and the public food assistance ranking. But some people also find the food retail ranking pretty compelling story. If you look at that map, you actually see that the towns that are on the, the corridors of I-84 and 95 and 91 seem to have pretty decent um, access to food retail options. And when you get into the far northwest corner and far northeast corner, suddenly you can see just at a glance that those towns um, have pretty constrained choices for food retail. You know, um, obviously, uh, and, and as we get here into the, the, the stu- our studio guests, we're going to hear some, some real direct reporting on this. But So you, you have a place like Hartford, which is where I'm sitting right now, mm-hmm. which has a, a very, very poor showing in terms of uh, the potential for food insecurity. In right. other words, a very, very, very high percentage, an unusually high percentage of people in Hartford uh, are at risk for food insecurity. Correct. On the other hand, it seems to have a pretty good system for delivering food services compared to some other places. Right. Um, you know, not maybe not too surprising in the cities that that's, that that's the case. Not that pro- all problems are solved in the cities, right. but that there's an infrastructure there anyway for attempting to solve these problems. There's right. food pantries, there's government programs, there's all this kind of stuff. I'm assuming that as you get into more rural environments, it's much more a roll of the dice whether, in fact, people with food insecurity have access, either via transportation or the existence of the programs themselves, mm-hmm. to the kind of relief we're talking about. Actually, some of the most rural parts of our state, especially in the northeast corner, are doing a really good job on food assistance. And so there's really some credit is due to folks in those regions um, at town hall and at the public schools that are really offering the programs that should be offered and making sure that 
folks are enrolling in the programs, you know, addressing some of the common obstacles that people have to accessing the programs. Maybe people don't know about the program. Maybe people are having trouble navigating enrollment. They are, they are uncertain if they're eligible. And actually, North, um, Northeast Corner is doing a pretty decent job. What alarms me is some of the towns, and I don't know much about these towns personally, but I'm going to pick on Salem and Ridgefield, actually. You know, these are two towns that, you know, have very low risk of food insecurity. Um, they're in the top quartile in regards to the risk of food insecurity for any random resident we might select. But in both of those towns, they're in the bottom quartile when it comes to food assistance. And that just, that just raises some questions in my mind. And we're, we don't know what the reasons are that they scored lower for public food assistance. But um, we are hoping that that type of comparison might spur conversations on at the town level for municipal policymakers and planners to try to explore more carefully what, is the, what are the conditions of community food security, what are driving those numbers, well, let me mention some of the people we have in studio here. I want to include them in this conversation now. Lucy Nolan is executive director of End Hunger Connecticut. Uh, Cheryl Trzinski is the founder and CEO of Masters Mana. Uh, this is a, a program you'll hear about uh, down in the, the central part of the state in the Meriden Wallingford area. Lisa Weborg is a shopper and volunteer at Masters Mana. And Nidia Saiz is also a shopper and volunteer at Masters Mana. Um, so um, I'm going to go to you for a second, uh, Cheryl Trzinski, listening to what Jeff Martin's talking about. How does, how does that stack up with the experience that you have in the Meriden-Wallingford area where you've got uh, you know, X number of people at risk for food insecurity and Y number of services and availabilities? How do you think the area that you serve is doing uh, at this, this whole challenge? Well, I know that we hear regularly that the country is in recovery, and that's not our experience. As of um, May, the end of May this year, we've had 2,000 individuals from the Meriden Wallingford area come through the doors seeking food assistance. What causes that? Um, loss of jobs that are still going on. Um, people who have worked part full time are now being cut back to part time, and um, the study is absolutely correct. We have no direct bus access or any other public transportation to Masters Manor. We're about a mile and a half off the bus route. So sometimes it's difficult for people to get to us um, unless you know someone is in need. People can actually experience food insecurity. Lisa Weborg, let's put a real human face on on this transportation question because it's the one that I didn't understand very well okay. heading into this show. So you live a considerable distance yes, from, from so. where you need to go to, to get food, uh, and you don't have a car, right? Yes, that's true. So so what happens? I either walk or I try to scrounge up the money to take a bus. Um, and, and so the, you know, we think about the bus as just sort of a given, but it's a buck fifty or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a dollar fifty. Um, and you're already uh, in a position where uh, you need to get to, to Master's Mandate to get food. Yes. So um, if you're walking, how, how long does that take? About an hour. And you know, that means that you walk an hour there. And an hour back. And yes. an hour back. Mm-hmm. But on the hour back, you just acquired food. Yes. Which you're having to carry. I don't know how many yeah. pounds that is, but I'm not sure either. My <laughs> husband usually helps me, though. Yeah, that I mean that's that, that seems an additional 
I mean, it's it's enough of a struggle that what you're facing right now anyway. Right. I, mean, I, I don't know. Is there any way you can characterize that? I mean, does it strike you uh, as, as a problem that you would really like someone to address? Yeah, because I actually have neighbors that can't get there either because they don't have vehicles. And I've been bringing stuff to them. I share with them. And I don't get much anyhow. So, you know, I get what I get for me. And then I share with my neighbors. Um, Lucy Nolan, as we look around the state, how unusual is this, that this um, uh, this woman would have to walk a- an hour to get to the food services she needs? I don't think it's unusual at all. I think we find it, um, if you look and go back to Hartford, many of the grocery stores, there's a big one on Park on um, New Park, and then people go down to Bloomfield. So you, people have to be able to get there or to, or to Wethersfield. They have to get out of the city, and it's taking a bus if you've got kids. Um, if you have five bags of groceries just to go to the grocery store and yet and even to go to food pantries, I think people often think that pantries are open all the time, like supermarkets, and that may be every other Tuesday from two to four um, when people are working um, there might be in a church when it 's only on the weekend um, so I think it's transportation is a huge issue for people. Uh, our number, by the way, if you want to join this conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We're talking about food insecurity. Um, let, let's have you meet uh, our fourth guest, and as I said, is uh, Nidia Saiz. Uh, she is both a shopper and a volunteer at Masters Mana, uh, just like Lisa Weborg. So, um, Nidia, when you have to explain to people, to whatever degree you do, um, how it is that your family is facing food insecurity, why you need the services of Masters Mana. Help people understand. Uh, people think of Connecticut as this really rich state, right, where mm-hmm. you know, everybody's got everything they need. Um, yes. So explain, explain how this happens. Well, we seven in the house. My families, I got five children. My husband is the only one provide everything for us. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason I go Master's Mana. Mm-hmm. They help me a lot. If I don't go there, I got to stretch the food or... Mm-hmm. And even so, probably you have to stretch the food. Yes, yeah. yes. Make sure you sit close to that microphone. We don't want to yes. miss everything you have to say. So um, and we're going to come back to Master's Mana in our second segment and get really into the nitty-gritty, how this works and, and how it, uh, it it may differ from other programs. But so Lucy Nolan, uh, just helping us get a big picture here too, um, we're going to talk about the Master's Mana model. But I mean I think the other perception that people have is that there's a lot of public money out there that's available to address this problem. People hear about SNAP. People hear about WIC. Uh, and, and so there are, some, there are some people listening right now who are thinking, oh, what are you doing a program about this for? I mean, isn't there, isn't everybody who needs, you know, something, get something? Don't they, don't they get food cop coupons? Don't, don't they get what they need? Well, just an example of uh, I, there was a study done last fall, uh, Connecticut Citizen Action Group and Alliance for Justice. And for family of with uh, two working parents and two kids, they would have to make um, – $28 an hour. Mm-hmm. And so those people are likely not eligible for SNAP. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so while we do have 78% of the population, eligible population in Connecticut um, are, that can get beyond SNAP are on SNAP, there are a lot of people who are just over, over the limit. We just had a call in our office the other day from a, a single mother of two who was divorced, not getting alimony, not getting child support, she was $20 over SNAP, even with a high mortgage, with um, the cost for her kids and, and things like that. And so there are a lot of people out there that are just – that are 
just over to get SNAP. Now, there are other programs. There are school meal programs. There's school breakfast, which a lot of kids, um, a lot of towns uh, are participating. However, Connecticut is last in the nation for the number of schools that are participating. Um, Wallingford is one of those big towns that has the highest number of severe need schools in the state and is not participating except for in the high school. Mm. And um, that is something that could really help people in in Wallingford to be able to get a free school breakfast for their kids. Um, There's also summer meal programs. We're just starting on right now, which for kids who get free and reduced price meals can go to an open site. Anyone age 18 and under can go to a site and get a free a free meal, whether it's a breakfast and a lunch or a snack and a lunch. So there are programs out there. It's really getting the word out and um, and and letting people know that they're there. But there is such a need. And I just when we were when Jif was talking about food insecurity, you know, one fifth of all the um, families with children in Connecticut um, are at or below two hundred percent of the federal poverty level. I mean, that's a huge amount of of people in our state. So I'm going to come back to Jeff for a, in just a second about uh, towns, communities maybe leaving some of this public money on the table, not uh, getting it when they can get it. Um, but um, just one thing that Lucy said made me think about you, Nidia. Um, it's, it, it's the case I, I think I read uh, from the pre-interviews that this happened to you, that when your husband got a fairly minor raise, you yes. got knocked out of eligibility. Can you say something about that? Yes. We, for $38, they, we over the table, the SNAP, that's the reason. In other words, you got a $38 a week raise? and No, $30, $38 more yeah. in his check. Yeah. So for those $38 more that we get. You, you got cut off. Yes, sir. All right. So that that's one of the things that could happen. Jeff Martin, as you looked at the panoply uh, of of programs in these towns, um, did you get the sense that that I mean, it sounds like there's quite a bit of variation, and that some cities and towns are leaving public assistance money for food support on the table. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and that, I mean that goes back to let's use school breakfast as an example. You know, there are towns where they could be implementing school breakfasts that are choosing not to, and. And, you know, and Hunger Connecticut has been doing a lot of work along with several other partners on trying to encourage towns to start implementing this program, which is fully reimbursable from the federal government. Um, but I'll take a, as a positive example, I'll use Norwich as an example. If you look at the town of Norwich and the public food and how they scored in the report, I mean, they are certainly, um, w- they have a very high need in that community and, you know, ranked in the, the sort of bottom 10 of the whole state in terms of need, and, and by that I mean the likelihood that somebody um, is food insecure in that community. However, in terms of providing public food assistance, they're sixth in the, in the state in, the, in a positive way. They rank six out of 169 towns. And I no doubt in my mind that part of that is the fact that, you know, and it comes down to individuals to a certain extent, the, the food service director in the public foods school system of the town of Norwich is a huge advocate of providing these food, these uh, summer meal programs, the school breakfast program, making sure enrollment and participation is high in the national school lunch program that she provides. And it really takes some commitment at the town level to make sure that folks that are eligible for these programs are getting these programs. And so I would hold that up as an example of how individuals really can make a big difference at the local level. 
You know, we're going to take a break in just a second and come back and talk uh, pretty specifically about Masters Mana. But uh, Lucy Nolan, just so I don't forget this, uh, one thing Jeff Martin said triggered uh, uh, something uh, uh, that I wanted to ask you about, which is there are a lot of children who are getting meals at school, but then the summer comes along. And, and it's not as though those programs don't exist anymore, right? But explain, explain sort of how the coverage works out there. Well, there, there's it's a couple to give you a very simplistic view. There's um, the summer meals program, and that is, starts pretty much after school and goes through as long as the town wants it to do. And, and as Jeff says, um, Norwich has been fantastic in getting this program. But they, uh, it's done by census, um, a number of free and reduced price kids in a neighborhood, and then what they have is an open site. And as I said earlier, any kid 18 or under can go and get a meal there. Um, and so it's really is it's a, what we want to have happen is to give that bridge between the spring and the fall so that kids are ready to go back to school. They have a safe place to go. They have good food. Um, the issue is while Connecticut is fourth in the nation for the number of kids who get breakfast, I mean for summer meals, um, only a quarter of our kids that are eligible get it in, in Connecticut. So we really need to do – we're really working. We're pushing hard to do some – um, outreach on it, but it's is, is that because they don't know that the program exists, or is it because the programs are not the coverage isn't good enough? It's a, the it's a little bit of both, but it's uh, that they don't exist. I know that um, again in Wallingford, Meriden is picking up a couple of the sites for for Wallingford. So um, it, it again, it depends if a town wants to take on on the issue, they will go full force and make sure that there are plenty of places. Um, they ha- can't be scared of thinking that people will say they're a poor community. They really have to say, look, there are kids who are in need and we're going to get them the food. And, and you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about the whole sort of no questions asked issue in the second segment. But I'm assuming these also these summer um, uh, programs for, for food, these summer school programs for food, it's, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, there are going to be people listening right now who also, uh, because they're undocumented or something like that, might be a little bit nervous about anything that has paperwork. So can you comment on that? Yeah, the summer meal programs, the open sites are totally no question asked, no paperwork, anything. If it's connected with maybe a camp or something like that, that's like a, um, I can't even, maybe Bible camp that is in, a, in an open site, let's say. They might need uh, paperwork, but there are sites. We have a great texting mechanism, 877-877-TEXT-CT-MEALS, and it'll tell you in your neighborhood where the summer food site is, and people can go, no paperwork, no questions asked. They want to get the food. You know, speaking of questions, you may have questions about what you can do to help, uh, or maybe you want to mention a resource uh, that you know about that maybe uh, other people don't uh, know about. Uh, you, you just may have other questions or comments as we go along here. We'd love for you to feel free to call in here, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the program, uh, the Meriden Wallingford program we've been making reference to. Uh, take a call or two. All right. When we uh, in just a second, we're going to have uh, Cheryl and Lisa and Nidia tell a little bit more of the story of uh, of this one program uh, in uh, the Meriden Wallingford area. But since calls are coming in here, let me try to get to at least one of them now. This is Millicent in Simsbury. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. You're on the air. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to mention another organization that does similar work, and that's called Gifts of Love in Avon, Connecticut. Uh, they serve the greater Hartford area, and among other things, 
act as a food source to people in need. Most of their clients are working poor, just as your uh, guests were describing, people who all it takes is one emergency that they couldn't foresee for them to be uh, food insecure. But one of the most interesting things of late is that uh, Gifts of Love this past year merged with the community farm of Simsbury, and so now they're able to provide not only the standard um, food pantry fare, but also fresh produce that, in some cases, the clients are actually helping grow as well. Oh, that's great. All right, thanks for that uh, report uh, to us. Let's uh, learn a little bit more about Master's Mana. I spent some time watching a documentary on your site, uh, so I got a little bit of a feeling for even sort of what it's like there, uh, Cheryl Trzynski. But tell us how long the, the program's existed and what it is. Well, we've been in existence for seven years. We started out very small in the basement of a church, passing out food and clothing. We now are in a 6,100-square-foot warehouse space, we have the food pantry that is open Tuesdays and Thursdays, 9 until 1, Friday nights from 3 until 7, because we do recognize that there are families who cannot get to us during the week. Uh, our families who live in any town other than Meriden are able to visit us once a week and do their shopping. Meriden has quite a few other resources, so we ask the Meriden residents to use those resources before they come to Master's Man, and they can shop twice. We also have the Family Dining Center on site, and that's open at the same hours as the uh, food pantry. We work with a lot of different organizations in town. Uh, we are actually a work and educational site for Ben Haven School, High Roads Academy, the Ice-T program at Lyman Hall. And on Thursdays, we are, um, we've collaborated with Community Health Center, and we actually have primary care, a doctor and nurses on site for primary care. And we have showers and laundry for our homeless folk. The uh, I, I was reading one report on your site today. I think you said about 586,000 pounds of food distributed last year to more than 3,000 uh, unique visitors. Uh, so that's a pretty big clientele. What Did you have a particular moment in your life that inspired you to do this thing? I did. Um, I actually felt God's thumb in my back going, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And I was working full time. And I said, well, what does that look like? How do you even start to do something like that? And I investigated um, a couple of different food pantries. And food pantries are fine and well. They serve a need. But it appears to the people who volunteer at Master's Man and the, the board members, people need more than that. You know, food is food is the Band-Aid, but what's the cause? And what can we do to get people beyond where they are today? What are some of the skills they need? What are some of the other um, programs out there that might help them get over this hump? You know, Lisa Weborg, maybe you could comment on that a little bit too, but you're both a volunteer uh, and a shopper there. Um, and, and, and as somebody who's experiencing food insecurity, it, it's really not just a matter ultimately of you getting food every week, right? right. You, right. You, you don't even want to be living in a world where you have to walk an hour and, right. and, and get food. So say, say some more about that. Um, but we'll, but we'll, uh, let me let me make it more specific. Thank in, you. Just in terms of the kinds of services that you see that Masters Mana um, offering, uh, in just above and beyond just giving people food, what strikes you as especially important? Like the clothes and stuff, like mm. uh, just getting clothes and the food and stuff. I don't know. 
I'm nervous. Now. Okay, that's I'm absolutely. Sorry. Uh, oh, that's absolutely I fine. I just went choked. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> all right. Uh, our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. And Cheryl Chazinski, as you're watching this, I mean, you kind of alluded to it at the beginning of our conversation, and Lucy's alluded to it too. Is it simply the economic downturn that started in 2008 that's ramped up the need for this stuff? Or are you seeing other kinds of pressures on people that that create a need for the services that you offer? Well, let me start by saying uh, when we opened in 2006, we did go visit the the Wallingford mayor and we shared with him who we were, what we planned on doing. And at that point, we were told we really don't need that type of service in Wallingford. Mm -hmm. However, in the last four or five years, we've been referred to as a lead agency in Wallingford, and we have a lot of referrals to us from the mayor's office, from the um, police office, from school systems, things like that. So what's the cause? Um, Certainly the economics. I think it took a little bit longer to hit Connecticut, and certainly it's going to take a little bit longer for Connecticut to um, see some recovery. And again, a lot of the people that we're seeing coming through the doors now, we had two-income families. Some of the uh, folks were actually able to get some overtime. Overtime is a thing of the past. 40-hour work weeks are becoming a thing of the past. A lot of people that were coming in now, yes, we may have two individuals working in the household, but they're working part-time. Benefits have been cut. So they were marginally making it. On the 40 hours, now you take that away from them, the loss of benefits, the loss of income, and people are really into crisis. And in terms of how, where your resources come from, where the food comes from, where the money comes from, my sense is you're not using government programs, right? You're operating, although you may be in partnership with, uh, with various uh, government agencies, you're kind of doing it the other way. Correct. We are contracted with Connecticut Food Bank, so we do get food on a weekly basis from Connecticut Food Bank. However, we've worked very, very hard to build bridges into our community, and we do a lot of food recovery with Stop and Shop in Wallingford, Walmart in Wallingford, edible arrangements, um, a lot of local bakeries, anywhere that we can procure food that we can quickly turn around and distribute to others has worked well. One of the reasons why I have been adamant about not taking state or federal funding is because the folks who come through the door are human beings. They all have a need. That need requires attention right now. If we start with litanies of paperwork, I don't want somebody to be misfiled. I don't want somebody to be left on the desk as somebody who needs to be called back. And we do have folks that are undocumented who come through our doors. And they have found a safe haven at Masters Mana. We don't ask a lot of questions, and as you can see through Nidia and Lisa, a lot of our volunteers utilize the services there. We become a family. We become a unit. We build relationship. We look out for one another, and I believe that's why it works so well. Um, Nidia, um, as somebody who, as, as she just said, you volunteer there and you utilize the services there. Um, I think sometimes people 
who who haven't experienced this, who haven't gone through what you've gone through, and haven't had the experience of also maybe working and meeting a lot of people the way that you've met a lot of people at Masters Manor, you know, they may get a, um, their own idea of who's hungry, and it's people who don't take care of their lives very well. I mean, people sometimes, I think, will even look down on people who, you know, who need help with food. And what, what would you want to say to somebody who, who maybe didn't understand that? Well, or, or let me phrase it a different way. Um, what would you want somebody to understand about your own life um, uh, and about how you're raising your family and the role that Master's Mana plays in, in allowing your family to have what it needs? Yes, it's, it's amazing to work in Master's Mana. Mm-hmm. And, and let me ask you a, a specific thing. What, what do you get from Master's Mana, too? What, what, in terms of food or, or what, you know, what comes home to your house from Master's Mana? I clothes for mm-hmm. my kids. I shampoos, mm-hmm. things that we always need, mm-hmm. yes. And, and in terms of the food, what kind of food do you wind up getting in order to feed? You've got five children. That's a lot of very hungry yes. little people, right? So what kind of food do you get out of Master's Mana? Meat, mm-hmm. milk, all kind, all different mm-hmm. type of food, yes. And what about you, Lisa Weber? What kind of food are are you bringing home from Master's Mana? Meats, eggs, cereals, mm-hmm. soups. Now, so. if, if I could wave a magic wand and get you one more thing that maybe it's hard to get at Master's Mana, is there a particular thing? No, not really because they mainly have everything you need. Although, Cheryl, one of the things we hear food pantries do struggle with sometimes is fresh stuff, produce, you know, fruits and ve- vegetables. How, how are you uh, adapting to that? Actually, it's worked out very well for us. Every year, we've always requested that folks in the community plant a row for Master's Mana. Uh, we also have an orchard in Cheshire that's been very, very kind to us. And there's also um, a temple in Cheshire that actually planted a garden for us last year, and they plan on doing that again this year. Kinetic Food Bank also is able to provide fresh produce in season. During the winter months, obviously, it's a, it's a little more difficult. We also have quite a network with um, local truck drivers and local dispatchers. So when a, a truck comes into our corridor, that 9591 corridor, and they have a load that they can't deliver or it's been rejected, we get the phone call. We either go out to the truck stop and pick up all the items that they have or they actually come to Master's Mana. Thurston Foods is also one of our phenomenal benefactors, and oftentimes they get deliveries up there that just aren't quite what they need to be, and they always send those loads down to us. All right. Let me grab a call here. Our number, 860-275-7266. This is uh, Francis in Greenwich. Hi, Francis. Hi. You're on the air. Um, I won't mention his name because I don't want this to be political, but uh, this um, candidate for governor suggested as a way of government not intruding in the lives of people in need for nonprofit organizations to take over. So this would be a way of dumping the problem on the charities. And I don't see that as a good solution for the kind of basic need that we have. 
All right. Good question. Um, Lucy, I'm going to go over to you because I'm sure you hear this uh, a lot. You know, why, why can't just the, all the Cheryl Trzynskis of the world um, solve this problem? Why does government need to be involved at all? Yeah, we do hear it. Um, and that was a lot this year when they were doing the farm bill that funded the SNAP program saying private charity should take it over. And I think the first people that will tell you that private charity can't take it over is private charity. I mean, we just heard all the hoops that Cheryl has to jump through to get some food to people. Um, also, I was thinking when you were asking about people who get who are on who come to for help. We had um, another. We do SNAP outreach um, and assistance, and we talked to an, a man who was a senior level um, worker at a firm here in Connecticut in Hartford with five kids, lost his job. His wife, he and his wife were trying to find a job. They can't find a job. They spent everything down and they got, they did get SNAP, which was great. He was so happy, but it's not enough. SNAP is not enough to carry somebody through to pay. It, it is supplemental. It's in its name, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So the food banks, and um, this is something I hear Nancy Carrington say all the time from Connecticut Food Bank, they take care of the people who aren't eligible for SNAP or for the people who are just over SNAP. So to add, to include all the people who are now currently getting the $156 million worth of SNAP benefits in the state of Connecticut to, the, to Connecticut Food Bank or to Food Share would be really um, untenable. It just couldn't. It doesn't work. Cheryl, you are nodding vociferously all through everything that Lucy yeah. said. And the other part of this for you, obviously, is because you're dependent on donations month to month, you don't know what those donations are. That's correct. Unless we get a grant that we know is going to you know, produce nicely for us, we do. We depend on the generous support of our investors. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, other people have calls. Other people have questions. Um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, some, some of the ways that the problem is being creatively addressed as well. Our number, Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Drew Barrymore. For show pages, articles, and photography, check out our great website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, three stories of underground Connecticut. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back. Uh, our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. If you have questions, if you have comments, with us, Lucy Nolan, the executive director of N Hunger Connecticut. Uh, Cheryl Trzinski is the founder and CEO of Masters Mana. Lisa Weborg uh, and Nidia Saiz uh, are both shoppers and volunteers at Masters Mana. Uh, and we're also welcoming phone calls from you. I mean, let me just say before we run out of time, the one thing that I hope you will take away 
uh, from today's show. I mean, it's so easy not to think about this. You know, I mean, uh, we are all thinking about food all the time, but mostly we're thinking either about what we want to have for dinner tonight uh, and whether we like what we had for dinner last night or whether we can, quote, afford to eat something, by which we mean, uh, you know, is it going to be too many calories? Is it going to put too much weight on our waistline? We don't really think about food insecurity that much. I just, it's so hidden from us. Um, and, and, and Cheryl, maybe we could just say that for a second, too. I mean, I noticed when I was saying this at the beginning of the show uh, that, that you were nodding a bit. People think food insecurity happens at some weird shadowy margin of society that has nothing to do with them, whereas it's probably their neighbors, people they actually know, but they don't know that story, right? Absolutely. You can be in the, the workplace and somebody in the cubicle right next to you is is fretting about how are they going to find enough food for their family. It could be, you know, the teacher at your child's school. The face of hunger has changed dramatically. Um, And Lucy's absolutely right. There are so many children, so many children that just don't have access to the nutritional food that they need. We have people who actually were donors two or three years ago that are coming through the doors needing to utilize the services. It's it's everybody. It's, you know, the school bus driver. It's maybe the receptionist at the doctor's office. It's people that you wouldn't experience, you wouldn't expect. But just start to have a conversation with somebody. Just ask, you know, the right question. And if you have resources that you can share with these people, by all means, you know, just slip it quietly on their desk or something. And there's a big misconception out there, you know, those people go to the food pantry. The last thing somebody wants to do is have to walk through the door of a food pantry. And again, I think that's what makes Master's Mana so unique is we respect the people who come through. We ask them to respect themselves when they're on site. Um, we try to make it as pleasant as possible without being painful. And if someone wants to remain anonymous and they want to use our services, I have no problem with that. Nidia, you were saying that, uh, too, about your experience as a volunteer. People come through the door. Uh, their faces usually aren't happy faces. So what do you do? Do you try to change their mood a little bit? Yes, a little bit. I always got a smile for them. Sometimes I give them a hug and I say, welcome. And I help them carry the food to the cars. I I try to make them happy too. Mm. Yes. Um, Lisa's got a good story about that too. Before we get to it though, uh, let me just grab a, a call from Liz uh, in New Britain. Hi, Liz. Hi, I'm calling from New Britain and um, I work as a volunteer for a lot of years at Urban Oaks Organic Farm, which is a year-round working farm of three and a half acres and seven greenhouses. And um, we're a little bit, well, we're significantly different from a food pantry. We sell food, but we have just launched a mobile market for exactly the reasons that your guests are describing, to go into the community for people who do not have transportation or are elderly or disabled or for whatever reason cannot get to the farm, even though we're on two bus lines. Um, what I also want to say is that I think Jeff Martin's research is the one that described New Britain as a city as the third most food insecure city in the whole state. And that's the reality of New Britain. It is not just since the recession. It is since the 1970s when nine um, factories pulled out and left 60,000 people without jobs. And um, the depression certainly hit 
then and has not been restored. Yeah, I think I saw a quote from somebody from the USDA in connection with this uh, mobile food service that you're talking about right now, re- referring to New-, New Britain as a food desert, you know, a yes. place where... where and that's why we like to think of Urban Oaks Organic Farm as an oasis of hope and promise in the desert, in a food desert. Yeah. Um, Most of our employees are New Britain residents, and many of them from the neighborhood. We're right in the Oak North, North Oak neighborhood, which is one of the most low-income neighborhoods in a food insecure city. So we do have that resource. We are reaching out to people of low income. We um, not only accept WIC and SNAP, but we double the coupons. We raise the money. We work for grants. But I have to tell you, grants, as uh, your guests are saying, grants are no longer easy to come by yeah. for food. And um, what we'll, we'll try to get something up on our website at wnpr.org, too, great about, about your program, because I do have the list of locations that you're going to and stuff like that. I, I saw that earlier today. Lucy Nolan, how uh, unique is what she's talking about? Obviously, for Lisa Weeborg to walk an hour to uh, Master's Manor isn't great. Uh, it'd be great to get some of this food on wheels. Uh, how easy is that to do and, and how many places are doing it? I don't think it's that easy to do, but more and more places are doing it. Um, We know the two food banks, Food Share and Connecticut Food Bank, both have mobile pantries that they take out um, that generally have fresh fruits and vegetables on them. Hispanic Health Center in, uh, excuse me, Hispanic Health Council in Hartford is working with Hartford Food System to do a mobile um, pantry as well. So there's, um, I know in Waterbury, their um, their Brass City Harvest is starting one. So the, it's becoming something that's happening. They're, it's expensive though; they have to be able to get the truck, they have mm-hmm. to, you know, do all that. But people are finding more and more and innovative ways to. Uh, really take care of the community food security and sort of getting the community involved in, in food security. Uh, let's grab a call. Speaking of food share from uh, Mark in Bloomfield. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? Good. You're on the air. Thanks. I, I just wanted to add to the uh, comments a bit earlier about the idea that uh, nonprofit organizations should cover all of this need. And the thing that we're finding at food share is that last year we distributed enough food for 12 million meals, which is that's a boatload of food. But that covered one-third of the need that's out there. And we're currently getting virtually all of the food that's available from the food industry. There's, not, uh, there's nowhere near that much more food available that we could get to distribute. And uh, so it, can't, it just can't be, the need can't be met by nonprofits alone. But it also can't be met... Uh, just by the government or even the government and nonprofits together. If we, these with our projections, if we got 90% of people that are eligible for SNAP getting SNAP, it still wouldn't meet the entire need that's out there. So there has to be additional work to get people on their feet and become self-sufficient um, in order to reduce the number of people who need food in the first place. So it, it really takes everybody. It takes the nonprofits and the federal government and communities working together uh, to, to address that problem. It's the only way you can meet that need. All right. Um, thanks for that, Mark. And as I say, you know, as we uh, head towards the close of the show, and I don't want to run out of time before we do everything, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. Food Share is an organization that I, I choose to support. But uh, if the, any of this moved you, look around. I mean, it's just not hard to find uh, a master's um, um, mana or, or something like that in your community. I learned earlier this morning about something called ampleharvest.org, which helps gardeners actually direct their surplus produce towards food pantries. You can go on their site. You can uh, type in 
a zip code and, and find out where the nearest pantries are that would accept the, the produce. There's a, a lot of things you can do, and as Mark is suggesting, pretty much everybody has to do all of them or, or it's not going to work. Um, Lisa WeWork, I want you to have a chance to quickly tell uh, about your experience also volunteering for Masters of Mana. And you were telling us off the air, you're actually you're, you're cooking for somebody now. Yes, I'm helping a, a neighbor of mine because he can't cook for himself because he's really sick. Can't even get out of bed half the time. And it must be a good feeling. I mean, you're a yeah. shopper at Masters Mana, but you're also you're helping other people. Right, but I've been doing that all since I was a young, you know, I always, if somebody was hungry, I brought them home and we fed them. Yeah. That's the way my father brought me up. Let me, I'm looking at the clock here. I think I've got time to grab one more call. Here is a Barbara from Ledger. Hi, Barbara. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, just fine. Hi. Um, I, I just totally appreciate this broadcast. Uh, I live in Ledyard, and I watched a documentary several months ago on food insecurity, and it just totally taught me that it's not what you think it is. And they talked about that when it comes to food pantries, a lot of things that they are missing are the fresh fruits and vegetables, especially in the wintertime you know, when they don't have the farmers donating you know, surplus crops. And um, so, I mean, what I do is every week when I go grocery shopping, I always get a little extra fruits and vegetables, enough for one or two families for the week, and I drop it off at the local local food bank. And um, it makes me feel really good, and I want to do more. I'm looking to do more. But thank you for bringing attention to this. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your call. Uh, Cheryl Draczynski, she's writing something important on her hand. Which she, just You can just say it to me, whatever it is. That was a very complicated signaling system you devised. She wrote something on her hand in ballpoint pen and was then going to show me her hand. But it's also purple ink. I only use purple. Right. One of the things that we've been looking at closely is the last caller is absolutely correct. In what we know, it's very difficult for people to get the fresh produce during mm. the winter months. We have been asking our friends and our neighbors to save their PVC pipe pumps out of an aquarium and some plastic flower pots. And we're hoping to start creating tower gardens where people can actually hydroponically grow vegetables, herbs, fruits in their homes all year long. So that's one of our summer projects that wow. we're going to be working on. That's a very cool idea. Uh, Lucy Nolan, for 30 seconds and no more, I'm going to hand you a magic wand. You can change uh, one thing, uh, make things better, one improvement. Go ahead. The floor is yours. Uh, my one improvement would be people get paid what they're actually worth when they're working because if they were, then we wouldn't be having as many problems with food insecurity. All right. That didn't even use up your whole 30 seconds. Oh. I want to thank everybody. You want, you, want, you want 10 more seconds? Well, I want to steer people to our website so that they can know where to get summer, where summer food sites are and to think about school breakfast and also SNAP if they're interested in getting SNAP. So that's in Hunger, Connecticut. Pretty easy to find on the web. Uh, I, want, I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, for coming in here today, and Jeff Martin, who was on with us earlier today. Tomorrow, we are going to be going back into history, uh, guided by Nick Bellantoni, the uh, archaeologist, state archaeologist of Connecticut.